welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. This is where we explore third-way leadership in a polarized world, and we ask what it means to keep Jesus at the center through it all. We hope you'll find the conversation meaningful and that it equips you in your context with fresh approaches to facing some of the most challenging leadership and ministry questions of our day. And hey, if you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome! We are a relational network of churches and ministry leaders with a vision to unite, equip, and amplify a movement that is all about Jesus. You can look us up on social media or head to our website at JesusCollective.com to learn more, find out what it means to get involved, all that good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Today on our podcast, we're bringing in um, our friend and teacher, Samuel Sarpia, who uh, has been around Jesus Collective for a while now and continually for both John and I speaks to this peace topic in a way uh, that is inspiring. And as we are praying our way into today's episode, I my prayer for today was that that same idea would happen in this conversation, that we would both uh, experience a calmness as we look at the polarization that this time in history has revealed, the pandemic has revealed something about polarization in the Western world and even beyond that, that as we have this conversation, that our RPMs would lower, our worry would lower, and our uh, confidence would raise, and that we would find new levels of inspiration about what it means to be a peacemaker. I know that polarization takes a toll on all of us, and to a certain degree, we're concerned about Uh, what we are watching happen. And my hope is that as we engage in this conversation with Samuel, that we will uh, find the right kind of handles and tools and practical how-to, but also the inspiration to recognize the divine role that we play in the kingdom in this moment. Yeah. Uh, So I want to introduce you to Samuel. You've read about his bio a little bit on the website when you registered for this. Uh, Samuel has a book that I encourage us to check out. It's called The Highest of All Mountains, A Guide for Christians Seeking Peace and Becoming Peacemakers. Anybody interested in that these days? I am. Yes. So um, Samuel helped found the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation in Rockford, Illinois. And there is a story behind this, and it's a good one. And I'm excited for you to hear it. So Samuel, we just want to welcome you. Thank you for being here on the podcast. And I'll, I'll kick us off with this question. So you you help co-found a center for nonviolence and conflict transformation. That doesn't happen to everybody every day. How does one find themselves co-founding a center for nonviolence conflict transformation? How did this happen? Uh, I'll try. Thank you so much, uh, John, Angie, and the Jesus Collective Partners for this opportunity to be able to communicate and share a little bit of my story. And what you're going to hear today is just a snapshot. This is by no means uh, 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 an overarching view of how and what prompted me to pioneer or to co-found a Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation. Um, As a pastor and church planter, who 
uh, has been in the mission field as a missionary who arrived Rockford, Illinois in 2008. And I, uh, with a passion for peace, justice, and reconciliation, I have started this network of trying to get our polarized city uh, for those of, if anyone is from the Chicagoland area, if you know Rockford, Illinois, it's divided by a natural river that separates the, the cities, uh, the two, the city in, into two, the east side and the west side. Uh, sometimes in most cities in America, in middle America, it's either the train track or the highway. So in our city is the river. And so this river is the east, on the east side is the uh, Caucasian affluent. You find all the good stuff of life. And on the west side, and I'm saying this, after living in Rockford for 13 years, there's finally one grocery store in the west side. So I arrived in the city, planted a church, and I began to look, because when we went as a church planter, we want to seek the heart of God. What kind of a church should we plant? Should we just plant the regular box store church, a franchise model where you set up shops, send out flyers, invite people, and not only after inviting them, you find a male worship leader. You, after finding a male worship leader, you do a raffle to give them a car so that you can get a lot of people showing up, right? And at least some will stick. But we decided we want to plant it. We sense, because coming from an Anabaptist, uh, Pietist tradition, we sense God wants us to plant a church that is different, that is modeled after the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So I began this church plant. And so one of the things in my church plant was I needed to have a reconciliation between the east side and the west side. That's the minority community and uh, uh, a Caucasian community. So in the process of doing that, uh, in 2009, this is, I have said this glorious day of gathering. September 28th was going to be the day that we launch and kick off this big, massive rally of reconciliation. And then August 20th, Two white police officers shot a teenager in the basement of a, a black teenager in the basement of a, a, a black church with 20 kids in a daycare. Whoa. And that unraveled every single plan that I had. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. That rocks the community. Yes. So, and you know, and what happened is the aftermath of that is you have the first weekend of a protest match. And in this protest match, you have Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, you have CNN cameras, you have all the cameras as usual. Uh, the next week, there was a protest match in support of the police officers. And this time around, there was 100% Caucasian. And I began to ask my clergy friends, how does God look at this broken, divided society? Is there a way that we can do something to build, to model what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And I'm not, a, I, I wasn't asking for people to compromise their position, but it's to define what does a third way look like? As for followers of Jesus. And so, John, here you have it. That was the vision to pioneer the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation as a third way. And as a third way that is neither my denomination nor your denomination, but a center that is able to look at issues, systemic issues of conflict, most especially the case of this uh, black community and this black young man. And this is before Black Lives Matter. And I can unpack the stories for you for another occasion uh, of all of the transformation work that eventually happened through the Center for Nonviolence. 
So maybe uh, you could put a pin in that and we could pick up that story in February. Uh-huh. Yes. Let's Commercial for February. Good. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you said third way. This is, uh, this is a term that some uh, listening may be familiar with, uh, a term that may have baggage for others listening. What do you mean when you say third way? And how does it relate to transforming polarization? A third way, uh, I will define a third way, uh, and I will use a John Paul Lederach definition of a conflict transformation. This is conflict transformation is a way of seeing, and let me just find the quote here correctly. Conflict, conflict transformation is a way of seeing and being, a way of looking at the current situation and imagining through the eyes of faith, where is God at work and how can we together move this conversation from a point of antagonizing each other to a point of looking at is there what is God doing that we can join God in this third way by asking the following question what is the underlying condition that led to the condition that we find ourselves because if we do not ask that question we will continue to find uh, a kind of throw rocks at each other and in throwing rocks at each other it doesn't help but create uh like kind of an eye for an eye and it leaves both of us or all of us blind right but the third way is an ability to say can we find jesus in an alternative in a way that draws us closer to jesus and most especially for followers of jesus can we, if the, the, the kingdom of God, Jesus preached about John 17, that you may be one that the world may see. And if that is what really calls us as, as a follower of Jesus and another follower of Jesus, what is that third way that Christ is calling us and challenging us to do and to be? So this is great. I love that seeing like that new way of seeing and being. I think that's beautiful. So just um, for the the visuals of us, the visually minded of us, right, who we're looking for. So you said a third way. I'm looking at three paths. If the third way is a third path, what might the other two? What is it a third way through? Uh, When I mean by a third way, I'm not just finding a compromise. I'm not talking about compromise here. Yeah, I'm talking about what is the underlying condition? What is the let's peel behind the curtain of what is currently happening and behind the curtain? There are different things that probably led to the condition that we find ourselves. And in the case of Rockford, Illinois, uh, back to the police story, there mm-hmm. wasn't the underlying condition beyond the, that led to this young man being killed. Uh, there were multiple facets at play. One, he's a middle school dropout, and the other is the police brutality. But the, 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 the underlying condition is both the police and the minority community are caught up in a system of injustice. Okay, so please too. Yes, the police too are caught up in the system of injustice because they are part of a system that is created that needed to be, that, need, that, that we need to constantly as humanity, as civilization evolve, we need to evolve with the changing nature of how laws have been written. Uh, some laws were written to advantage others and to disadvantage others. So in the case of Rockford, I look at what is the third way that we can together between the police and the community build a future where a community thrives together 
where we will no longer see each other as enemies, but rather we see each other as brothers and sisters created in the image of God. So the third way is not finding evil in the, in the, in the other, but to mm. finding their Jesus in that other. That's, yeah, let, let that hang. I'll write that down, John. Not finding evil in the other, but finding Jesus in the other. That's a very different approach from, let's say, how uh, the rhetoric unfolds on social media today, where it's nothing but finding evil in the other, almost. So, Samuel, earlier you said, looking at a situation and seeing where God is at move, and then we went on to talk about how you, you see the third way as, don't just look at this, look at the underlining thing underneath this condition. It's like the deeper way, you know? Right, I like that language. Yeah. Uh, when you say looking over and seeing the Jesus, not seeing the evil in each other, but seeing the Jesus in each other, is that what you're referring to when you say, see where God is at work? Is that the same thing? Are you referring to the same thing? That is part of it. It's not all of it, but it's being able to see, even in my enemy, in who I perceive as the enemy, can I still find Jesus in them? And let me tell you a story about the current, one of the things that really drives me about our current polarization, uh, Vax versus anti-Vax. I, I spent a, a couple of times, I just moved from Quebec to Ontario. So in the last couple of months, I, had, uh, I, I have met a couple of people that are anti-vax and I've met people that are pro-vax. So I had a time with this friend of mine who I will leave nameless. And he shared his background story of why he is against the vaccine. And the reason why he is against the vaccine is, first of all, his father was you during the Second World War. His father was part of the guinea pig. The, the government they don't call them guinea pigs, but the government shipped them up north. It is a partnership between Canadian government and U.S. government, and they kind of do all whatever experimental drugs on them. And then when they come back home, they try to clean up all of their memory. So they come back to their families for whatever, once a year for that Christmas season. And he watched the, the, how his father digressed from being human to being a zombie. Mm. And eventually his father took out a gun and shot him shot a family homicide and shot and killed himself. And he said to me, because of that, having seen the kind of experimental drugs that have been used on people, he in, will in no good conscience take the vaccine. Honestly, if I have not heard this backstory, I would have considered him one of those people that just wants to antagonize society. Right. And he is adamant. And even though he had had COVID and he barely survived, but and he's, he still insists, I will not be a subject to uh, an experiment because yeah. of his past history. So, uh, Angie, John, and for those that are listening, often peel the curtain and look at the story behind the veil. Yeah, it's interesting, Samuel, as you said, peel the curtain, somebody in the chat said the third way approach feels more like peeling back false perceptions in order to see hidden realities. Like that's, bingo. that's a, yeah, bingo. Good job, Tim. <laughs> so I'm, 
I, I've got a thousand questions and so do you. Yeah. You want to do rock, paper, scissors for this, Angela? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm you just going to dive in so I can yeah, speak you before go. you. Right. I, I'd love to hear another example of the, here's what it looked like on the surface, but here is what was the issue underneath it. I know you have peacemaking as part of like, this is part of the way that you engage with the world. I would love to hear another example of this is what it looked like on the surface. But when you peel back the layer, here was the condition underneath. Do you want me to take it international or to stay local in North America? I give that to John since I took the question. Could, could you play out, play out Rockford? Like, we just got the intro to the story. So can you tell, can you answer that by telling the story? Yes, I'll tell a story. Um, so after the two police officers shot this teenager and like I said, gave you the, that first end of the story. The question that I began to ask myself as a peacemaker is, what is the, what will be the glue that will unite us as a community together? And so I began to look at the underlying condition that created this young man and the underlying systemic condition that created that really continued to perpetuate police brutality and police violence against uh, minority uh, uh, community of color. And so what I come to find out is that the school that this young man dropped out of has been a subject of uh, various litigation. And this school in itself has this middle school have six principals in five years. You can tell me having six principals in five years if it's not a recipe for disaster. So the end result is the success rate, the, the graduation rate from a middle school to high school in this particular public school is under 50%. And I began to raise the awareness to my community by sending out a question like we did basically gather information. Are you happy with the condition of the school? And if you are not, if people responded, yes, we want, we are not happy. And I asked, would you be willing to be a part of changing this uh, school? And if so, how much time do you have to contribute? You can contribute an hour. You can contribute a day. You can contribute a week. Uh, however, you are able to be a part of changing the school. So the long end of this story is three years after, by the end of the first year, we see progress. What we did was we requested that the police department be withdrawn from the school because having a police presence further emphasized that the, the, the minority community have to be policed again. And so this, this is another system of oppression that we needed to remove off this, uh, behind, uh, off from the backs of these kids. And then we realized that there is unintentional gang consequences that the school district itself creates. And simply because there's a law in the state of Illinois that says if you live less than a mile from school, you will not be bossed. So imagine a group of kids that live in the same housing project. Half of the kids are bust and half of the kids are not bust. So it creates unintentional gang violence in the school and all of this. So we, we, we tried to figure out what is the layer behind, what are the stories behind the situation that kids will drop out of high school, out of middle school and end up being short. But there's a reason that I'm going through this. I, we're looking at this. If we can address a, what we perceive as a small 
minute problem of children's dropout, we will be able to then turn our, our gaze and our attention to say to the police department, are you willing to change the systemic policing that has been an unjust system of policing? How did they respond when you that, how did they respond when you asked them to pull out? When you said, hey police, why don't you guys like leave the school? How did that- um it was a pushback, but the police department had a pushback because they were paid to be in the school by the school district. But because at this point, I have rallied enough moral and community support. I have rallied uh, close to 300 parents, parents that do not even belong to live in the school, parents from across the river that are willing to see change. I tell you, there are always people on the other side of the aisle that are willing to see change. I mobilized and started a parent-teacher organization with parents on the other side of the river because they're passionate about seeing change. And the moment the school district noticed that there is a voice to hear, when you have 300 people show up at a school board meeting asking for police to leave and they want to be volunteers, obviously it will speak, it spoke volume to the school district. So when we unpack and what we did was the more information we gather, the more we inform the community. We were not keeping any information to ourselves. And so the Center for Nonviolence and Conflict Transformation became the neutral uh, entity that is constantly educating the community on the issues of conflict, violence, and proposing some of the changes that we see. And what am I, why, why are we proposing changes? We're proposing all these changes based on a theological understanding that Jesus calls us to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile. And the rest of the story, uh, this is a story that has, un- that has been uh, gone through in the last 13 years. So I'll tell you, so much has happened in that school, so much has happened in the police department that I will leave for our January conversation. February. I mean, we oh, could do February, it in January, too. February conversation. So, oh, okay. Angela. Well, I'd like to repeat my question because, yes, you demonstrated other places where you saw the issue underneath the issue. Can we take it into another context? Like, can we bring it into the church? Can we go into a part of your story that includes your pastoring? Because it's one thing to look out in communities and see polarization and say, okay, we've got an issue in the justice system or the injustice system. It's another thing to look over at our churches because you, like, you just said a guiding principle was Jesus's idea of turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. So, okay, I can understand that the community at large is maybe not familiar with that concept, maybe doesn't hold, hold that same standard. Surely the churches. Yes. <laughs> and yet, when we look at our churches, we're struggling with polarization inside the church at the same rate and maybe even higher vitriol. Like it's, it's really something. So can, would you mind like pulling another case study from your pastoring inside the church on this? Were you signish condition underneath it? Yes, I don't mind. Uh, uh, for those of us, that, for my American friends and, uh, and colleagues that are listening to this, you know the election of uh, Barack Obama and uh, John McCain, not John McCain was the first, uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. I, it was in the heart, in the thick of planting my church and leading through the polarization. 
And bear in mind that my church is not in the city of Chicago, where everybody thinks Chicago is kind of very on the progressive side end of things. I live in a community where it is more our political alliance as a city tend to lean more towards Wisconsin. So I was pastoring a church that right through the aisle, towards the last days of the debates uh, before presidential election, I can tell you what side of the aisle in my church is Republicans and what side of the aisles are Democrats. The independents had no voice in my church. It was, that, it was that extreme. And, and it we say that, like the aisle, were they actually sitting? Were they actually seriously sitting? Sitting. Come on. Come on. Literally the other side of the aisle. I'm not making this up. It is not only, it is like, it's not, I'm not speaking metaf- metaphorically. This is visually, it's literally sitting. And so what I do every Sunday when I get up to preach and I notice that today the crowd has gone the way they have always gone, I'll mix the congregation. And we'll have a conversation about what is Jesus calling us to do. So our church became a prototype reconciliation model. So we learned to reconcile our, our differences. And because of that, that conversation about, yes, we are different, but yet there is something, the common unity that binds us. And that common unity that we, I am convinced is that we all agree that the beloved community, the kingdom of God, the by and by kingdom that we all long for, Democrats and Republicans long for that kingdom. And if that is the ideal kingdom that we long for, how can we get there? And what are some of the things that I need to lay down? I need to accept about my opponent and see the humanity in them and will allow us to lay down, uh, uh, allow us to hold on to that beloved uh, community, right? So that beloved community, that model actually became one of the driver in our conversation in our city. So people in our city knows that my church is very much after reconciliation. Uh, they've seen people that disagree with each other, but yet choose to work together because of a common, uh, a common conviction that Christ died for all. And he rose for all. So politics then did not become the defining uh, mantra in our church. What defines us is what is God calling us to be? That sacrifice. And so that third way. So Angie, I, I'm talking from a church experience point of view, and I know I can go back to my church. It is, it is still, we have not won people on there. Nobody has won much on the other end, but at least they have chosen to live together, to function together, and to operate as a body of Christ that model what it means to be a follower of Jesus to the world. Yeah, and, and it sounds like you you had to present a a greater vision, like a a truer truth than political ideology X or political ideology Y, uh, because if the if the vision was just horizontal then they're fighting each other's ideologies. But it sounds like you were painting a picture of, you called it the beloved community or uh, Jesus. You know, we talk about Jesus at the center, Jesus at the center as a higher vision than our political differences or agreements. Is, is that what I'm hearing? That you, pre- you presented this bigger vision to essentially lift the gaze 
of the op- opponents from their differences to something that they could find agreement on in Jesus? Yes, the agreement was, was hinged on Jesus. But I'll tell you, I brought my, my personality as well plays a part mm-hmm. uh, into the conversation uh, in the sense that my historical context, growing up in, a Niger- in Nigeria as a minority, from a minority community in a, pro- in a region that is predominantly Muslim, and I have learned to grow. I have learned to negotiate my way through to have my to have our way. The minority Christians have learned to negotiate and have their way to still be followers of Jesus, even in the midst of oppression. And as a result of that, we have seen multiple uh, relational, I would say, conversion because of the way we have lived. And my journey into living in South Africa, a post-apartheid South Africa, and then coming to the U.S. with no historical context of uh, the racial segregation and the racial oppression. So although my context is different growing up, but I come with, an, with, with no frills, no gain, no, I don't have a dog in the fight. The only dog I have in the fight is to see that the kingdom of God that we pray, that kingdom come, that will be done, that it is being lived out here in real, in a tangible way. So that's my only mission. And so I try as much as possible to present to my community, my church, what does that kingdom look like? That peaceable kingdom. And how do we strive to get there? And in doing so, I think it helped compel all of us that there is greater kingdom out there than our parallel political kingdom. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's a bigger vision, a bigger kingdom that you're calling people to live into. Yeah. Samuel, it strikes me that the work that you do both professionally in the sense that you actually systemize these things, but also just the way you carry yourself through the world is a peacemaker. Although I don't think we've actually used that term here. Uh, I would love to hear two things from you. I would love to hear your definition of a peacemaker, a Jesus-centered peacemaker would be my assumption, but by a peacemaker. And I'd I'd actually really like to hear you talk about nonviolence because that's a new concept for me now that I hang around with Anabaptists. (laughs) It's a new thing. So would you define a peacemaker and talk a little bit about nonviolence as that relates to being a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who seeks to bring the presence of justice and reconciliation. Different from a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper maintains the peace through sometimes military force. But a peacemaker, look at what are the systems of injustice that needs to right justice. Justice for all. Not a Robin Hood system of justice but a justice that the privilege and the, the, the advantage and the disadvantage feel a sense of justice, that God's kingdom is really for them. Mm. And so that is kind of, uh, for me, the, the definition of a peacemaker. Would dovetail into nonviolence. Nonviolence is an act of way of confronting the system of injustice. Nonviolence, one word. Non-violence, not non-violence. Non-violence simply means the absence of violence, but the presence of a barrier that separates us. So we're all living in Kumbaya. 
But nonviolence, which is active, looks at the systemic injustices and say, what are the, uh, the, 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 the principalities and powers that, assist, that, are put, that have been put into the system that is causing injustice? So nonviolence is a way of being and seeing. And with me constantly seeking to transform this, uh, it's always looking at a set of specific techniques as a way of looking and seeing, which requires a different lens. And that lens is the lens of Jesus in this, in my regard. So I'm constantly looking at everything through the lenses of what is Jesus saying and what is Jesus calling us to do and to be and how and what are some things that I will do. And so, for example, if I look at a church situation, the first thing I want to do is I want to understand uh, uh, people's fear. I want to ask the question, what's going on here? It's kind of a, 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 a tool for analysis, right? What's going on? Who are the parties? Who are the primary parties that the current underlying condition is affecting? And then not only who are the primary parties, who are the secondary parties that is affecting by default? So what is the issue that we're trying to address? And what is this issue all about? Oftentimes, we don't take time to listen and go deeper to really Mm -hmm. seek all of uh, what's going on. We come with our little political or social media sound bites or our biases and we step into a fight without really. But I call, I often call on people that wants to explore peacemaking to, to take an analysis of what is going on. What is the issue? Whose interest is this going to serve? Is it going to serve my interest? Is it going to serve my cronies' interest? Is it going to serve the interest of the general uh, uh, of the general public? Uh, even though sometimes when you fight, to, when you seek to see that the interest of the general public is being served, you will be the scapegoat. And then when I do all of this, I look, what is the perception? What are people's perception? The two opposing parties always have a perception about oh, yeah. each other. And, and then when you look at all of that, oh, feelings comes in. What is the feeling here? Yeah. Because when, and, yeah. And, so that, and that's my question. Like, if I'm, a, if, if I'm a church leader and I have a polarized church, let's say vaccines uh, or masks or, you know, you name it, LGBTQ that, is that, another that. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, how do you how do you help the the two opposing sides to stop demonizing the other as seeing them as the other is the problem if if they would just see it my way that problem goes away which they won't see it their way and the problem doesn't go away so how do you help them to not demonize um, remember in the beginning I alluded to a story of a friend of mine who has a fear who is totally anti-vax because of the underlying condition. Yeah. Let us learn to listen to each other's story. Listening. Listen to each other's story. Listen and encourage, sincere encouragement to listen to people's stories. Validate people's story. Don't just look at their story and say, ah, that's 
That's just you. But validate. And if you need a clarity, actually retell the story to them from what you're hearing and what you're understanding. And when you retell somebody's story and he, he or she realize you're not getting it, they will tell you, no, you don't understand. They'll retell the story in a way that they, because sincerely, what you've just done is you've developed a sense of curiosity and a yeah. sense of interest in them as a person, not the condition. And so when you retell their retail or retell or restate their story, what happens is it leads to a deeper reflection for yourself. And you can clarify with them why you think or your own point of view. In the process, you, you're both listening and telling each other story. And then you seek to center where should we put our attention? Should our attention be on our differences or should our attention be on our similarity? The truth is when you have two people that are diametrically opposed to each other, the interesting thing is if they hear each other's story, there will be a common line somewhere that intersect. And oftentimes we don't hear each other's story enough. When we hear each other's story, it helps us to find the humanity in them. And once I see humanity in you, I will no longer treat you as the other. I'll treat you as Angie. I'll treat you as John. I'll treat you as a human being that have needs just as I do. Practically speaking, I I can picture how a pastor uh, shepherds this sort of mindset and reinforces it, models it. Like I can picture practically how that looks. But how do you practically practice that? Is that just the thing you're saying and you're modeling all over the place? And then are you actually doing like uh, the meeting house that's up here in the Toronto area? They do this event called Ears to Hear, where they actually practice as a community this concept of coming around and listening to a people group's story and give the opportunity for anyone from that particular people group to be able to share their stories. Like there's one practical way I can picture of where you actually practice group listening. What what methods have you used to work a group of people through the practicing the practice of listening? I will tell you a story. I've always I always have a bag of story, right? Uh, because my life is full of tapestry of stories. Uh, just at the start of the pandemic, uh, you know, there's been this uh, again. Uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, a group of pastors. This is brethren. I'm not talking about this is Anabaptist, pietist. From the same denomination, same district, half of the pastors were really upset for the idea that the statue of uh, Lee will be taken out of the square in Virginia. Yeah. And one group says, what should we do? So I was consulting and working with this group of 30 pastors uh, over a six-week period. And we began to look at each other's stories. We did, we come, we, I took them through some kind of value exercise. And in the value exercise, I put the Lee statue as one of the values that you value. And then one of the statues, I say, okay, let's add more statues to the story. And so in one of the values, I said, let us put one of the most controversial, which is not really as controversial anymore. Let's put Rosa Parks statue in that, uh, in, in, uh, right next to uh, General Lee. And I tell you the conversation after three weeks of first not talking to each other. 
they began to realize that our values have, we have more in common value-wise than divides us. But because we live in a fallen world, let me, now I'm pivoting back to the spiritual, right? Because we live in the fallen world, the human tendency is to default back to the fallen nature of humanity. So by even attempting to listen to each other and beginning to find how can we find tools to frame the underlying condition that we really are concerned about. They, they, all these two uh, churches are concerned about the violence that will follow with the removal of um, a General Lee statue. Yeah. But at the same time, they are concerned. One, the other group is concerned about the violence that has already begun, been, been dished out to those that were protesting for the, uh, uh, calling for the removal of the statue. So you see, both of them have good points. But after listening to each other, we together as a group arrive at a journey that, yes, you have a valid point. I have a valid point. But what is God calling us as the church to do? Are we going to fight each other or are we going to help bring healing to our community? And oftentimes when a church doesn't reflect on what is God calling us to do and it's all about me, myself and I, it yeah. becomes difficult to even model to the world. Right now, uh, the world is, n- the world is not looking for a church to the church as a model because the church is already modeling kind of what, kind, what's going on there. I'm not interested yeah. in those people. I would rather go look for an outside shrink or outside guy who does, who seem to know what he, he or she is doing than to go to the church. But I believe we can still redeem this. I am a person of hope that the church can redeem and reclaim what we have lost. We can, we can reclaim it when we absolutely believe that and put Jesus at the center of all that we say and do. And I'm not talking about just a, a caricature of Jesus that is all crazy and wacko, but a Jesus that is loving, a Jesus that his table is bigger and larger. A Jesus that will allow Revelation 7, 9 that says, and I look and behold a multitude that no one could count from every tribe, every nation, every language. Oh, wow, that buffet. If the church can get a glimpse of that vision, that buffet, it's more <laughs> invitational than puts who, who needs to be out of the table. So that's kind of the, Im- the imagery that I have. And I'm, again, I call, maybe call me an optimist. I'm confident that we will see violence reduced in our lifetime if we work through allowing Jesus to make and mold us. That's good, man. Yes. Yes. Okay, so I'm an exasperated church leader. I've been through mm-hmm. COVID. I'm tired. I've... I've had uh, multiple people that I've loved for years and who say love me for years come up to me and tell me that my preaching is because I supported Black Lives Matter, that my preaching is uh, liberal uh, because I talk about critical race theory. Now I'm a now I'm a Marxist um, because I preach from scripture with confidence. I'm considered by another party as being one of those conservatives and there's baggage with that. So I'm getting hit from all sides and all these people at one point were in my church and they're leaving. I'm trying to hold together my church. You have, you have four minutes. 
to help me. I'm desperate. What do I'll I do? What, where, where, no more stories. I need. <laughs> <laughs> but the true life experience is the best, right? It's a true life experience. Ask the moderator for the Church of the Brethren, and then I'll give you nuggets. Ask the moderator for the Church of the Brethren. We are polar opposites. The church on the West Coast calls, uh, in the East Coast, called the West Coast of the U.S. the left coast. And the church on the West Coast called the extreme right coast. So we don't talk to each other. So I did an experiment. I preached a sermon, a middle, along in the middle of the line sermon. I preached it in the West Coast. And a pastor came to me and said, great sermon. You need to preach it to those people on the right to get their act together. <laughs> the next week, I flew to the East Coast. Preach exactly the same sermon. The, a pastor respected, and this are all respected, said, man, we love that sermon, but we, we so hope that our left coast brothers will hear this sermon. And so then I know God is the one speaking, not me. So the point is, when you preach out of conviction, a message that, that highlight all of this injustices that you, you, you just mentioned, and you do it in love, and knowing that your longing is to draw people to Jesus and people are still leaving. Sometimes we're more afraid. Pastors are more afraid of what will become of my reputation than what will become Jesus's. Oh. <laughs> uh. like seven people put that in the chat right now because that needs to yeah. be said over and over again. Is this where I turn the other cheek? Is that what I'm supposed to do right now? <laughs> Go the extra mile. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's... That think, is not... John, I love that you asked the question because we're looking for like a little checklist of like, how do I, how do I fix these conditions? And what I hear Samuel saying is the condition for true peacemaking is happening inside of the church leader. And it comes out of... and and. Yeah. I'll leave you with this word. No one can preach his way through peace. You live it out and it becomes a witness. Yeah. And and the other thing I'm hearing is peace is not a technique. So I'm playing devil's advocate because we are there's many who are desperate and we want technique. And I'm I'm I know in February we'll actually be talking technique, but what I'm hearing today is the foundation and the heart of this is this is not technique. This is a being, this is a being issue. You said at the beginning, a new way of seeing and being, and this is a being issue for the leader or for the thoughtful church member who wants to be a peacemaker. That's, that's what I'm hearing. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And always imagine a transformation. We can't just stop at reconciliation. Jesus is always transforming. And he transforms us just as he calls us to be instruments of transformation. Mm-hmm. And because I have been transformed in one area of my life does not mean that, oh, so, I almost said it in French. I almost said so to finish the class. So. <laughs> Beautiful, man. Speaking in yes. tongues is welcomed here. It's wonderful. Go ahead. <laughs> Except that it's Quebec language. It's in French. So somebody will write me out for saying it wrong. <laughs> so I think, God, that there's a longing that we do not only settle for peace, but how is Christ constantly transforming all things? 
because I believe that when we, sometimes we think when we arrive at this piece, we, if we're able to sit at the dining, at the dining table and have a dialogue together, and then that means everything's no, there's got to be a transformation of attitude. There's going to be a change in my posture. There's got to be a change in my attitude, a change that is forward looking and forward thinking, forward embracing and forward grace giving. A change that look, that no longer wants to hold and pull back that old uh, d- disagreement, but a, ch- a, a change that that looks that that happens personally, a change that happens relationally, a change that happens structurally, and a change that happens culturally. When all of these four changes we begin to see happen in our own context, then we will know God is moving and actually we don't often know he moves and people tell us that we see god doing this right but when we start acclaiming and attributing what we think is god's movement sometimes we're not 100 percent there but if we hear what people are saying about what god is doing and we we proclaim that we're re-echoing what people what people what god is doing and people are recognizing yeah I, so you, we don't have time for you to answer this, but I want to put this on the table for February. Okay. I'm hearing all of this. This is really important, but I'm hearing lots of forgiveness and mercy. But what about in, in these conversations? What about those who have actually harmed? What about the person who was murdered by the police? What about the justice aspect of this? Even if you're not wanting a pound of flesh in your heart, what role does that play? Um, so can we can we park that one for February and come back to it? We can park that and I'll talk about addressing systemic change, social, spiritual, yeah. and how to frame issues to be addressed and look at a system, look at a holistic approach to conflict transformation using nonviolence method. If the nonviolence method and the civil rights movement have succeeded in getting the civil rights act passed. That's something to look at in that matter. I keep coming back to your quote about you can't preach peace. Like I, I just keep coming back to that and think, I feel like my spiritual imagination has been woken up. And just imagine if just even us on this call, like what is possible if even just us in this podcast spent the time between now and February with the prayer of make me a peacemaker, make me a peacemaker. And then we come to a workshop where you're going to equip us with tools where we have done the due diligence work of tilling the soil inside and having the spirit prepare the soil for those tools. Like what's possible in our churches, what's possible in our families, what's possible in our communities. I just... The world is groaning for the church to step into this particular wound. And the church, it is our moment. It is our moment to show the distinctiveness of Jesus's way. So what is possible? This is my call to our, whoever is listening to this, to spend between now and February praying, make me a peacemaker. And then come to the workshop and find the skills to act out the new soil of our hearts. Like, come, friends. Like, the world is groaning for Jesus' message. Yeah. All right. 
Samuel, yeah. the chat has been very active. So, Paul, can you come <laughs> in here and narrow it down for us from this beautiful buffet of questions? <laughs> oh, yeah, I certainly can. My goodness. I, I will just make this initial observation that, like, as we got closer to Q and A time, I, my heart just got more and more excited because, like, oh, you, there's just beautiful things stirring in the chat, and I, I want to say to all those that have asked questions, and there's a ton of them. If I don't get your question, no, I still love you. Um, send me an email, and we can talk that <laughs> through. Uh, my first question, uh, and this one comes from. Uh, Lee Anthony. And the question is how, and they're emphasizing the word practically, how did you recruit, rally, and mobilize your movement? So you spoke earlier in one of your, your stories of you had like 300 parents. Tell us more a bit about that process. Uh, so following the shooting of this young man, I realized, and at that point, I just finished studying uh, King's philosophy at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, of social change. I didn't give all my back, background, so at least that will uh, will help. So with my uh, with studying King at the Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies from the University of Rhode Island, I realized there is a tool. I have a tool that I can organize. So I decided to pull in a couple of community leaders first, who actually across the spectrum, who believes in me and are still willing to give this. Uh, reconciliation or try. So I brought in David Jensen, who is King's protege, mentored by Dr. King, and he, for two full days, 8 to 6 p.m., like poured on us, like just down, like really just get immersed in the philosophy of uh, um, of Martin Luther King from a first-hand story, from, from an experiential story. And David happened to be my mentor. That's why he flew in. And after that, we looked at what, what what can we frame? And then the story of the middle school, we started digging behind the underlying condition of the young man. And so then the first thing is I did a, an op-ed in our local newspaper. And because at that point, I'm a pastor. So I have to take my pastor side off because the moment a pastor starts doing an op-ed, what ends up happening is people start thinking you're recruiting from your church. And yeah. so I do... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to recruit for my church. I wanted, I had a heart for a city transformation. And so when I did an op-ed in the, in, in the local newspaper, I said, I, we are starting a movement. Is anybody involved in seeing change? We cannot let another young person being killed. But we can together rally and change the destiny of 970 young black boys and girls in our community. And if you're in, hit me up with an email. I received over a thousand emails. And I followed up with every single person. I I can get it. I'm, I'm crazy sometimes. I can work nonstop. So I made sure I spoke to every single person out of that thousand plus email that I received, uh, a little over 700 declined. They were emotive when they sent the email. But then the few that stayed, I rallied them and sold them a vision of what change can be possible. And they believed in it and they started recruiting other volunteers. Uh, one of the lowest uh, 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 response. The lowest of all the response that I got is from clergy. 
Mm. I made the silly mistake of going door to door from each clergy. We have about 400 churches in the city of Rockford. I went to about more than half of them. And I was silly. Introduced myself as a pastor. We really, your church members go to this church. Can you come and help? And they would go, yeah, I'm coming. Never showed up. Mm. So, so that's how I, I mobilized that number of people. And I delegate. Oh, there's one thing that I that I know I'm I'm good at. I find a vision and I find somebody to do it, and I step back and watch them do it. That's beautiful. Um, let's move into our next kind of questions. I'm going to thread together a couple of themes and kind of put it into one question. But many people made the observation in our chat that reclaiming the church's voice will take active nonviolence active listening and uncovering our idols. And then several people mentioned like there's a challenge to die to ego and self. And so I kind of want to put the question around this. How can we gear our spiritual formation as churches to have uh, an exterior life and not just an interior life? How can we bring it justice? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's justice. So, yeah, talk to us about spiritual formation and the pursuit of justice. I, I will say this to you. Jesus Collective is doing an excellent job because finally there's a platform that we all can be able to. That Jesus Collective is not rallying us towards my denomination or your denomination. Jesus, is, Jesus Collective is calling us towards the centrality of Jesus in our messages, towards Jesus in our spirituality. And I... I I want to sound prophetically here. I think there's something that God is birthing a movement and we are at that, at that junction in history that we can join God or we can turn back to our back, our chairs and face back our denomination. So to respond to that question, I think look at the movement of what God is stirring. And there is a stir. The prop is being stirred. Let's say the pool of Bethesda here is being stirred and Jesus is inviting us to either jump in the pool and partake and get all the healing and be a healing to the world, or we can go back to our regular practices and say, yeah, done that, doesn't work. But let's take a step of faith. And I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but for those that are listening who doesn't know Jesus Collective, please check it out. And I, I love Jesus Collective. I signed up to be a member of Jesus Collective myself, and I tell you, what I've gained from Jesus Collective is much more than what I have contributed. And I want to keep contributing because I feel like I'm gaining more than I'm getting. Yeah, that's beautiful. We, you can send us a bill for that endorsement. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, thanks for speaking of that too, Samuel. Like, I think you, you've highlighted the importance of relationship and being connected beyond ourselves because we can't form ourselves. Uh, we need community we just need a community to form ourselves the and next we question we can't equip ourselves i have no. to say that yeah we, for sure. we have to have others this next question comes from xander and he asks this he says having walked perpetrators and victims alike through conflict it's often the victim that hurts longer and deeper than the perpetrator is there any focus to help them distinct from the perpetrators uh, so I think there it's questions around um, walking with victims and how we would approach victims primarily. And you have, you have, this is an important question that you have to answer in two minutes. Yes. Two minutes. <laughs> uh, see, so with the method I use, non, we use nonviolence method. 
which is kind of the philosophy of King, but a Christocentric philosophy of King. Uh, before I, I go down the social part, there's a social part of King that Jesus has been uh, cleansed out of all the King's social movement. But we know the centrality. As the centrality of King's movement is it empowers the disadvantage to actually have a voice to stand on. And not only it, it helps the, the victim becomes have a voice to be able to speak for themselves rather than somebody speaking for. I have practiced restorative justice. I've practiced victim, offender, restitution, and all of that. But whatever, there's, there's something about the victim and offender restitution that still leaves the victim sometimes not fully, and I'm not a critical, a critical of it, but I think if we can be able to give the king's philosophy that makes uh, the, the, the individual, the philosophy behind the beloved community, uh, the six principles, which are not listed today, uh, but one of the principles is uh, attack forces of evil, not persons doing evil, so that the victim does not become a victim to the system by constantly attacking the individual, but rather attack what are the forces of evil that are at play here that is trying to undermine my humanity. Mm-hmm. If I can attack that under that system that undermine my humanity, it has given me voice that I'm no longer a victim, but I am victorious, even in spite of the situation I've just gone through. Thanks. So good. Thank you for that. I, I just want to say, I appreciate your many stories in the way that you, you were modeling reimagination, um, just in the way that you opened up what was possible. So thanks for sharing, Samuel. Yeah, I need to make a comment about that. Somebody said, ask a question, that I never gave a name to the man that was shot. I am trying not to continue to stir the pot. But it's if you search Rockford, Illinois, 2009, uh, you Google the, the story of a young man killed by two white police officers in the basement of the church, you'll find the name. Thank you, Samuel. Paul, thank you for just bringing such uh, fun and goodness and skill to the chat. Thank you. Uh, So in in a few minutes, we are going to go into some facilitated optional breakout times, because again, like this is we're a collective and whether you're formally a part of Jesus collected or not today, you're all a part of Jesus collective and we want to collect together. Uh, So we'll have some facilitated breakout rooms where we can just process what, what have we heard today? What's going to land with us? What do we need to do with this? Um, but I, I just want to thank also our podcast listener for tuning in um, after the fact from our live kind of settings here and just welcome you to join us at some point for this live setting. These are great opportunities to connect with others and explore more of what Jesus Collective as a, as a network it, pointing to a greater movement is all about. listening. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com where you can hear stories, find info about upcoming events and workshops, maybe even explore getting involved through partnership as a church or an individual leader. Listening is such an important part of our journey as an organization. So please feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and your feedback. Drop us a message on social media or you can email us at connect at JesusCollective.com. Here's to keeping Jesus at the center.